0: The reading this morning is from the book of Psalms, chapter uh, Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. <clears throat> Against you, you only I have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful by at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost in place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. And grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and to my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem, and there there will be righteous sacrifices. Whole burnt offerings to delight you, then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of God.
1: Before I start, there are some words I need to say. Today's topic, as you might have already gotten from the way that Neil's led us this morning, thanks very much, Neil, is around sin and repentance. And that's a pretty tough topic at the best of times. I need to confess that this is the most trouble I've ever had preparing a sermon. I've had a very trying week, in which I feel God has been confronting me with some of my own sin. Sins that I wasn't aware of or perhaps didn't want to admit to myself. And it wasn't just in a theoretical way you did this. He's been showing me the consequences of my actions, which I didn't realise at the time, I thought they were for the best, but they have caused a lot of hurt to me and to someone I love very dearly. I'm saying this to all of you so that you know that this isn't some far off and theoretical sermon. It's real, it's personal, it's painful. It is to me and I believe it is to all of us in our individual ways. So these words I say today, you should know, are words for me as much as they are for any of you. My prayer is that God would speak his words today to all of us. So with that in mind, will you pray with me? Father God, be present with us and surround us with the knowledge of your love. Jesus Christ, word of God, speak your truth through me so that my words might be not mine but yours. Spirit of God, move our hearts to accept your teaching and be changed, moulded into your new creation. Amen. Repentance is not a word that's very often used today in day-to-day life. In fact, I wonder when's the last time any of us heard or said it outside of the four walls of a church or maybe a Bible study. It's one of those Christian buzzwords, I like to say, things that those of us who grew up in the church or have been believers for a long time are accustomed to hearing about, or at least we know what the word is. But for those who are new to the faith or just exploring and people who know nothing about Christianity, not so much, right? To give a definition, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines repent as to turn from sin and dedicate oneself to the amendment of one's life. It also means more generally to feel regret or contrition or to change one's mind. But generally, whenever anyone uses the word, it's pretty much always in a Christian context about repenting from sin. In fact, In the general community, the word repent has a bit of a negative, uncomfortable connotation. To many non-Christians, it conjures us images of pushy, Bible-bashing, and brimstone types standing on street corners with sandwich boards, repent or face the fires of hell. You know the type? And even for we who know there's a lot more to it than that, repentance comes up as a topic relatively rarely in our discussions of faith, surprisingly rarely perhaps. We find it much easier to talk about God's grace and mercy and forgiveness than our own need of that grace, mercy and forgiveness. We like to dwell a lot more on God's amazing and unearned act of salvation through Jesus Christ on the cross, and why wouldn't we? But we tend to think of that and not our responsibility to respond and live in a way that honours that salvation. I wonder why that is. Perhaps we are a bit cautious, even fearful, that if we talk about repentance too much, we might come across a bit too much like those fine brimstone Christians I referred to earlier. Perhaps we're afraid we'll misrepresent the gospel to the people around us and cast God as a wrathful, vengeful deity, a sort of cosmic policeman who's looking for ways to shove us up. And yes, that is a problem and a risk if we take it too far. But to undervalue or neglect the importance of repenting is just as much of a problem. It's certainly not biblical. Jesus did a lot of talking about sin, hell and repentance. I'm very glad actually that Neil chose John chapter 8 as the call to worship as I was going to refer to it here. Jesus saves an adulterous woman from certain death by stoning, by execution. And he did not condemn her. He did say, what did he say? Go and do whatever you want? (laughs) Of course not. He said, go and leave your life of sin. Go and sin no more, some translations have it. If we read the Bible at all, we know how important it is for our conduct to align with our faith. We are to go and sin no more, to repent. So why don't we talk about that? I wonder if we have been infected, poisoned if you like, by this insidious modern mantra of just do your best and it'll be fine. Sure, everyone messes up from time to time but as long as we try and do good things most of the time and generally be a good person we'll be all right. We're all right, aren't we? Are we? It's uncomfortable, very uncomfortable, for us to talk about or even think about the things we do wrong, let alone repent of them. We know, at least in theory, that we do do wrong, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us who believe have heard that verse before and we know it pretty well, don't we? And what about we all like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way. But when it comes to specifics, how many of us find it easy to point at something we've done and say, I did wrong there. I sinned against God. I sinned against my neighbour. I need forgiveness and I need to repent. Those are very hard words to say and hardest of all, when we need them most. When confronted with something we did, what do we naturally do? We get defensive. Our minds conjure up excuses and reasons, like, yeah, I know that was a bad thing, but I was just having a really bad day, or there was this extenuating circumstance, or I did wrong to them, but they did this much worse thing to me, so they deserved it. Or we can minimise what we did in our own minds, like it wasn't really that bad, it was just a little thing, didn't do any lasting harm, no one will remember this years from now. And the trouble is when we think of our actions this way, minimising or justifying them, we mentally give ourselves permission to do it again and again and again, if we have another bad day or some other circumstance comes up. And so we don't repent. We don't turn ourselves from sin and towards amendment of our lives. We don't change our mind. We aren't regretful or contrite. We just keep doing what we always did, keep going our own way. We don't do what Jesus said go and sin no more. Instead, we go and keep sinning. Isn't that a tragedy? The Bible has much to say about sin and repentance and grace. But the most helpful way for us to understand, I think, is to look at an example. What happens when one of the good people in the Bible, in fact one of the most praised figures in the whole Old Testament, does something unambiguously terrible and is called to account for it? How does he react? David is a figure most of us are likely to know. Even people outside the church have probably heard the story of David and Goliath, the shepherd boy with his sling, taking down a mighty giant warrior. David would later become the king of Israel, God's people, its second and greatest king, its most faithful, even to the point of being called a man after God's own heart. And yet, David sinned, he did wrong, He actually made quite a series of mistakes and the Bible doesn't shy away from them. You can read about them in the whole book of Samuel. But of course, the one that comes to mind most for those who know the Bible is his affair with Bathsheba. The full story is in 2 Samuel 11, which I thought was a little too long a reading. I can see Cole read a sigh of relief. (laughs) But to sum up the story, David from his kingly palace sees a beautiful woman named Bathsheba bathing on her rooftop. Now, being king and having all the power, David finds out who she is and sends for her, sleeps with her and gets her pregnant. The kicker in all of this, Bathsheba is married to a man named Uriah, who is away fighting in a war. So of course, since Sheba's gotten pregnant while her husband was away, people are going to find out the truth, that she was unfaithful. So David brings Uriah home, sends a message and brings him home, tries to get him to sleep with his wife so they can pretend the child is Uriah's. It fails because Uriah is too dedicated to his duty as a soldier and so finally David sends Uriah back to war and arranges for him to be killed in battle. Bathsheba mourns her husband and then she marries David and has his child. So this isn't a small thing, is it? We're talking about a whole raft of sins. Adultery, lies and deception and finally murder. That's at least three of the Ten Commandments right there. And David certainly wasn't loving God or loving his neighbour, was he? What happened then was the Lord sent a prophet called Nathan to to David, which you can read about in the next chapter, 2 Samuel 12. Nathan told David of his sin and said that as retribution, the son David had with Bathsheba would die. You might wonder why I'm telling all this story when our reading wasn't from 2 Samuel, it was from the book of Psalms, Psalm 51 specifically. Well, Psalm 51 was written by David, and the heading says, which is rare for the Psalms, what it was written about. A Psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. This, Psalm 51, was David's response to having his sin called out and judgment pronounced. So, what does he say? What is his response? Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Many of us here are parents. All of us have families and friends. Suppose for a moment that you were told that as punishment for your sin, someone you love was going to suffer. Someone you love was going to die. How would you respond? Would you beg God to change his mind? Would you try to bargain with him by saying, yes, your sin was bad but was it that bad? Surely killing someone innocent is a bit too much? Would you even get angry with him and think that because he's doing this God can't be good or can't be loving? David says and does none of these things. Instead, blot out my transgressions. Wash away my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. The consequence of David's sin is devastating. It's the death of his child. His baby. But David is less preoccupied with the consequence and more concerned with the sin itself. He wants to be free of it. He wants to be better. He is truly repentant. With David's example, a truly godly person who did a truly ungodly thing, we can learn much about what repentance looks like or ought to look like in our own lives. Really, I think every verse of the psalm we could unpack to learn something new about repentance But I'm just going to settle on a few, and some of which might surprise us actually. Firstly, repentance is not a mere change in behaviour from wrong to right. It's centred on God's action. In other words, repentance is by God. Read the verses again. Blot out, wash away, cleanse me. What does David not say? I'm really, really sorry and I'll never do it again. Why doesn't he say that? Because, really, can he promise that? If you read through the rest of Second Samuel, this is not the last mistake David makes. Not at all. He messes up quite a few more times, perhaps not as spectacularly as that, but still. If you were to... Asked the question whether he changed after Bathsheba and became really, really morally good and then read the rest of his story, you'd have to say he failed, to be honest. No, what he said instead was, God, I can't deal with my own sin. I need you to deal, to do it for me. I need your help. I need you to deal with it. The only way we can be truly repentant is to rely on God to take our sins away, not just try harder. It has to be God. So repentance is by God and it's also for God. Did you notice what David said in verse 4? It's interesting, isn't it? Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Against you only have I sinned? Really? Is David forgetting the man he literally had killed? Was that not a sin against him? What about the way in which he dishonoured Bathsheba? She couldn't exactly refuse the order of her king. So was forced to cheat on her husband and then observe helplessly as he was murdered. So yes, David sinned against both Bathsheba and Uriah. But ultimately, Bathsheba and Uriah are both God's creation, aren't they? They're God's children. And if you dishonor the creation, you dishonor the Creator. God commands us to love our neighbor. And in not doing so, David disobeyed God quite blatantly. Second Samuel 12 says he showed contempt for God. That's a pretty harsh word, isn't it? And so when David repents, it's for God. It's God who he's addressing. God who he's apologising to. Now, yes, when we hurt others through our sin making amends to them is important. The Bible's clear on that. There are plenty of examples of that. That's just a part of loving others. But our primary responsibility is to God. When we sin, it's against him. And when we repent, it's for him. So repentance is by God, it's for God, it's also to God. Repentance doesn't just stop at regret and acknowledging sin. By the dictionary definition I gave earlier, it also involves amending our lives. Now, what does that mean? I already talked about earlier how it's not just changing our behaviour and trying really hard not to do it again. So what is it? Perhaps we should pay attention to what David does, what that looks like for him what he says his response will be when God cleanses him of sin. And he gets to it later on in the psalm in verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. And later my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. So what does it mean to amend our lives? To praise God, to teach sinners his way so they can walk them. In other words, to devote our lives to God and make him our highest priority. That's what we need to do, that's what repentance involves, and it's very different from surface level behaviour adjustment. It's not just trying hard not to do something, it's shifting our focus to something better. God. That's the end goal of our repentance, God himself. Let's not beat around the bush. Repentance is hard. Even once we know what it is and why we need to do it even when we perceived and acknowledged our own sin, turning away from it is something different. It's not an easy thing to do. And it's not easy precisely because it means letting go of ourselves. Letting go of our pride, our control, our preferences, what we might prefer to happen, and letting God take centre stage, by God, for God, to God. Verses 16 and 17 the psalm contrasts repentance with sacrifices since at the time people would typically express their remorse by sacrificing burnt animals at the altar. But David says, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, or some translations have it the sacrifices of God, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. How easy is it to come before anyone, let alone God, just anyone, just completely shattered and broken by what you've done? How easy is it to allow ourselves to be that vulnerable, to trust so much, That's a sacrifice. Repentance is a sacrifice. We're sacrificing ourselves, our egos, whatever you want to call it, so God can do his work in us and through us. We become less so that God becomes more. David was called a man after God's own heart. Not because he was perfect or even close to perfect. This particular incident is proof enough of its own, isn't it? Not too many people, not too many of us, have or will do something as terrible as what he did. No, it was because he responded to his sin with repentance, true repentance. By God, it was God who needed to cleanse him. For God, it was God... Who he'd sinned against, and to God. It was God to whom he was moving his focus. That's what it means to be after God's heart. So, how are we doing with that? Neil led us in a prayer of confession earlier in the service. What did you think about then? What did you pray about? What did the prayer sound like in your head? Was it about behaviour management? Something you know you did wrong and just really want to cut out of your life? Was it sort of half grudging, like confessing something that you know in your heart is wrong but part of you still wants to justify yourself? Or did you not know what to pray about at all? Or did you throw yourself on the mercy of God, asking him to take away your sin, acknowledging it's he you sinned against and resolving to make him the centre of your attention from now on? If you've never repented in that particular way before, just know that you can always start today. And if you find it difficult, if you find it a sacrifice that's very, very hard for you to make. Just remember that the greatest sacrifice has already been made. God's own innocent son dying on the cross for our sin, just as David's innocent son died for his sin. You are saved. God has taken your sin away. So repent and turn to him. Amen.